Find a fresh take on a fall getaway to Wilmington, North Carolina and beaches. Enjoy hiking trails in a state park, fresh seafood with a sight of live music and fall festivals galore. Then live it up along the Riverwalk in Wilmington's historic downtown. With three island beaches, Carolina, Curie and Wrightsville and a vibrant downtown, you get the best of the Carolina coast all in one place. Plan your fall getaway at WilmingtonandBeachesVacation.com. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. February 24th, 2005, Cleveland, Ohio. A 38-year-old mother of two rushed from her family home into her car after receiving a late invitation to go to the cinema with her sister. As she drove the local roads to the cinema, the 38-year-old mother phoned up her friend and told her that she didn't feel well. Shortly after this brief conversation, she lost control of her vehicle and crashed into a passing car. Passerbys rushed to her vehicle to see if she was all right. The 38-year-old had become glassy-eyed and couldn't speak. A few hours later, she would be pronounced dead at the local hospital. At first, it seemed like a fairly straightforward, tragic case of a fatal road incident. But with an autopsy being unable to determine a cause of death, and the woman's mysterious last words to her friend, this case was nowhere near as simple as it first seemed. In a case of poison, extradition and adultery, let's expose the truth behind the murder of Rosemary Essa. People say Ted Bundy didn't show any emotion. I showed emotion. The following episode is not suitable for those under the age of 13. Viewer discretion and parental guidance is advised. Before we delve into this episode, I'd just like to give a massive thank you to Magellan TV for sponsoring this video. My regular viewers will know that Magellan TV has been a constant supporter of this channel and other true crime channels. And as I say every time, we really wouldn't be able to make the content that we do without their help and their support. So please do not hesitate to go show them some love and check out their extensive library of interesting documentaries, ranging from true crime, history, science, space, and even nature shows. Magellan TV was created by filmmakers and their producers alongside talented curators to ensure that each and every documentary on their service is the most premium you can find. The lovely people over at Magellan TV have provided me a little preview of the documentary I've watched this week, Nerded Online. Let's take a look. 
In the story of cybercrime in South Africa, a chilling new chapter unfolded when a remarkable young woman found herself the victim of a brutal attack. There's so many different ways that a criminal or a person with bad intent can target and can compromise a person using technology. It's difficult to try and establish who the person is behind the computer. Loved and respected by all who knew her, Rosalind van der Feyfer seemed destined for an outstanding future. It's a documentary full of twists and turns, so after you've jumped over and watched it, I'd love if you could drop a comment on this video or send me a tweet or Instagram DM with your opinions and thoughts. Use the link at the top of the description or the link in the pinned comments to bag yourself a one-month free trial to Magellan TV, including all of their 4K documentaries at no extra cost. Now, back to the case. Rosemary DiPuccio was born on the 21st of October 1966 in Cleveland, Ohio, to parents Rocco and Gigi DiPuccio. She was the third child to be born into the family, with an older sister called Deanna and older brother called Dominic, and eventually a younger brother named after their father, Rocco. At the age of just four years old, Rosemary, known as Rosie to friends and family, would meet someone 11 years older than her who would ultimately become her best friend throughout her life, Eva McGregor. Eva, who was 15 years old at the time, had come to Rosie's house to babysit Rosie and her older sibling Deanna and Dominic. And following that first babysitting that Eva did for the DiPuccio family, Rosie's parents continued to invite Eva back to babysit whenever necessary. As a result of this, a strong bond was formed between the 15-year-old Eva and the DiPuccio children, Rosie, Deanna, Dominic, and eventually Rocco. The DiPuccio family home quickly became a second home to Eva, who would visit every week or so as a means of teenage escape from her own family life. And the relationship between Eva and the DiPuccio family continued to strengthen as Rosie and her siblings became teenagers. Let's take a look at a clip of Eva discussing this relationship and this part of her life. It's important to note that throughout this episode, we will be taking a look at recordings of various different characters in Rosie's life to try and get a deeper understanding of who she was as a person and the tragedy that occurred to her. These recordings are taken from the courtroom. And did there come a point in time that the DiPuccio children were growing up and becoming teenagers? Yes. Did you continue to interact with them? Yes. What happened was that, you know, the next sort of the next phase of it was uh, with the children was I was office managing at, at that Markowitz practice, and Deanna was actually the first one to approach me to um, to come and be my file clerk when she was in high school. And did she? Yes, and she worked for through her high school years with me, and then she went on to work for a dental office from there. And how about Rosie? And then Rosie approached me after Deanna left, and um, she started working for me in high school. So it was, it was that point where, we, you know, our relationship went from babysitter to, you know, adults. And she stayed with us at the practice through nursing school. And so your relationship grew and developed. Yes. And it was, it was becoming different now yes. because more of a friendship. Right. It was an adult friendship then. As Eva just mentioned, Rosie enrolled and started studying at a local nursing school to become a nurse, supporting herself financially through working on Eva's staff. 
Rosie was known to have been smart and a hard worker, and so it came as no surprise when she graduated from nursing school and officially became a nurse. Since before anyone could remember, Rosie had a deep love and draw towards babies, especially children born with disabilities. According to an article in the Cleveland Metro, as young as nine years old, she wanted to be around babies and would ask her neighbors if she could help take care of their infants. Rosie's parents would later say that she had been almost like a second mother to her younger brother, who actually ended up learning to talk and walk a lot later on than most children, due to the fact that Rosie would carry him around everywhere and was able to easily translate his baby babble. Rosie was described as being self-sufficient and independent. She had an active social life and was fairly popular within her social circles and often told her family and friends that she didn't need a man to be successful in life and rightfully so. Rosie carefully managed her money and shortly after she graduated from nursing school, she purchased her first home in the city of Cleveland. Rosie went straight out of nursing school and into a stable position at Mount Sinai Hospital in Cleveland, a hospital which has since closed. It was well known within Rosie's family that she wanted to have children of her own. It was always a topic of happy discussion for Rosie, and on one occasion, she even teased her dad by telling him that he could choose the man who she would settle down with. And while Rosie was going to nursing school, did you know about some of her friends? Yes. And would she share personal, intimate things with you? Yes. Would you share personal, intimate things with her? Yes. Did there come a point in time that you got married? I did. Mm -hmm. And um, did the families, were they invited to your wedding, the DiPuccio's? Yes. And after um, your wedding, did you continue to have interaction with Rosie? Yes, because she was still working for me. All right. And during that time, um, was she dating anybody? Yes. Mm -hmm. And who was she dating? Um, I, I don't remember his last name, but I, the, the particular one that I remember is Steve that she was dating from John Carroll. But I, I apologize, I don't remember his last name. That's okay. But as she was dating, excuse me, as she was dating this Steve, would she share with you yes. her dating activities and the things that they would do together and mm -hmm. um, relationship with her the parents? The ups and downs of a relationship, yes. And you would give her advice. Yes. Uh, tell her things to do and not to do. So this was now more of an adult relationship. Yes. And during that time, um, after she graduated, where did she go to college? She went to Ursuline. And after she graduated from Ursuline, what was her first job? At Mount Sinai. And what did she do at Mount Sinai? She started on the oncology floor. As and, a nurse. And during her time in Mount Sinai, was she still dating Steve or did she take up with somebody else? Um, I don't know. After after college, her and Steve had no relationship. All right. And then the only, I don't remember them, her having any other relationship. It was at Mount Sinai Hospital that Rosie would meet a young physician called Yazid Esser in 1995. Yazid, otherwise known as Yaz to friends and family, was described as being handsome, charming, and had a sense of humor that he shared with Rosie. The pair got on really, really well. They were the perfect fit for one another. 
and their friendship soon turned into a relationship in which Rosie appeared to be happy with. However, the bliss of this perfect relationship would be shattered when Rosie went for an appointment at her hairdresser's. Rosie overheard one of the women within the salon talking about a man that they had been seeing recently. When the woman revealed the identity of the man they'd been seeing, Rosie's heart shattered. It was Yazid Esser. Rosie, who was absolutely beside herself, immediately went to talk to Eva, her best friend, about what had occurred. And Rosie ultimately decided that the best thing to do was to call off the relationship with Yaz and break up with him, which is exactly what she did. But Rosie's heartbreak would take longer to heal. She was upset, obviously. She, she couldn't believe that their relationship had gone that way and that she trusted him. <clears throat> and any, like any woman, she felt betrayed. And during that time, um, were you a comfort to her? Yes, I hope so. Rosie decided to try and start dating other men and try to move on following that heartbreak. But she found it really difficult and it would transpire that Rosie's pain would only get worse. I know the very first date that she she went on, she called me and she was very, very, very upset because um, she had contracted herpes from Yaz and she couldn't go to the next dates because she felt that she just couldn't have to tell somebody. She, she was very, very embarrassed and upset about that. And during that time, then after this initial date that she went on, did she go on many more dates, to your knowledge? To my knowledge, no. Yaz had not only cheated on her, but had given her the STD herpes, a common yet treatable STD, but that doesn't erase the embarrassment that Rosie felt. Though, after a short while, Rosie received a letter from Yaz in which he explains that he had broken things off with the women that he had been seeing before and that he had realised that he was in love with Rosie. Rosie and Yaz then began to talk again and soon began dating once more. I was shocked when she called me and told me that they were going back together and, you know, our, as we said, my relationship with her was very honest and very straightforward and... And I just said, what are you thinking about? Why, why would you do such a thing? What makes you think that he is going to change? And that he, 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 he's a doctor and he gave you herpes. I mean... And it appeared that their relationship was smooth sailing from then onwards, eventually getting married on the 11th of September 1999, with Rosie becoming Rosie Essa. Did you attend the wedding? Yes. All right. Did your did your family attend the wedding? Yes. All right. And um, how did Rosie and Yaz appear on their wedding day? Happy. And was this the first time you had met him? <coughs> yes. You had never never met him prior to the wedding day. <coughs> did you meet members of his family? No. Um, did you express your good wishes to both of them? Yes. And. Would it be fair to say, Mrs. McGregor, that once Rosie married Yaz, you accepted him? Um, I accepted her accepting him. Okay. All right. And during their initial years, where did they live? In Hudson. 
And did you have the opportunity to visit with them in Hudson? Yes. And what kind of activities did you go or attend at their home? Usually it was to keep Rosie company, so it was really more Rosie than I spent very little time with the Oz. It, my girls and I would go over there when she was by herself and we would spend time together. And did there come a point in time that Rosie got pregnant? Yes. And during those months that she was pregnant, would she call you and discuss her pregnancy with you and her health issues and how she was feeling? Mm -hmm. Sure, yes. And did you, by the same token, did you call her? Yes. And yes. check up on her? We had a, a routine that we, you know, we would talk, my days off were Fridays and she would call me at nine o'clock in the morning, even though I asked her to call me at 10, but she'd call me at nine and we would talk and Sometimes we look at the clock and it would be one o'clock in the afternoon and we go, come on, we have to go and do something else today, so. And would you go and do something else together? Not together, we, meaning that both of us had to go back to our, our homes and, and, and you know, do things that we needed to get done. We hey, would, go ahead. Oh, sorry. No, go ahead. I'm I mean, sorry. We, you know, I mean, we would, there were times when we didn't do phone conversation, we would meet for breakfast or we would go have dinners or lunches. Rosie's dream of having children was finally coming true for her, falling pregnant with her first child soon after her wedding to Yaz, giving birth the following year in the year 2000, and then giving birth to her second child two years after that in 2002. When Rosie started having children, now did you participate in that role reversal, were you starting to babysit her children? Yes. Mm -hmm. All right. How did that come about? Um, it just was a natural, natural thing. When the first time that she needed, you know, she needed someone to watch Armin, then my girls and I would go and drive out there and, and watch Armin. And did you attend Armin's birthday parties? Yes. And did your, not only you, but your entire family? Yes, usually it was my girls and I. <clears throat> and approximately how long did they live in Hudson? Gosh, they moved um, when Armand was, after Armand was born. So maybe a year or two after they were in Hudson. I really don't know exactly. All right, and where did they move to? They moved to Gates Mills. And in relationship to where you reside, Mrs. McGregor, is that, was that closer to you? Yes. As a result of Rosie moving closer, her and Yaz living in Gates Mills, did you see more of her? I don't think we saw more, more of each other than we did when she was in Hudson. And did your routine continue? Yes. Mm -hmm. And approximately how many days a week did you speak to Rosie? Oh gosh, sometimes every day, sometimes every other day, sometimes it would be a week in between, but definitely at least once a week we would catch up, talk to each other. And at the time that she moved to Gates Mills, was it a fixer-up home or was the home already established? Um, it was an established home, but there were things that she arranged to change. And did she change them? Mm-hmm. And yes. did she share yes. with you? Did she share with you what she was going to change or update? Yes. Yes. And would she ask for suggestions or advice about how to do that? No. Did she in fact tell you what she was doing? Yes. 
Um, now, during that time, did you also spend time with other members of her family when she moved to Gates Mills? Would you see um, them only all? on the birthdays? I mean, uh, the, our relationship was it was just between her and I. I mean, I, the family was at functions, and that's when we would catch up and see each other. But really, the relationship was just between her and I. And as this, as your relationship grew, did you share with her your concerns with your children or concerns with your husband or things of that sort? Sure. There was a lot of, you know, both our lives went through ups and downs and, and she, I shared all those things with her, all my concerns. And she would usually talk me down or convince me to do something that I wouldn't want to do. And, show me why it would be a good idea. And so yes, we exchanged a lot of, lot of conversations. And during this point in time, did you talk about health issues with Rosie? Um, yes, <coughs> you know, pap smears, things that, you know, as women that we went and, and her, you know, sometimes hers came back positive and, and then being concerned until, you know, there was follow up and, and things like that. And the same thing for me when I had to go in for my yearly procedures, we would talk to each other and be worried at the beginning and then happy at the end when everything was okay. Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. By the time 2005 came around, Rosie and Yaz had decided to try for their third child, and so Rosie began to take prenatal vitamins prescribed to her by her doctor to help with the process. And so, as Rosie did with the majority of her life, she shared this with her best friend, Eva. In fact, Eva and Rosie shared with one another any medical events that they had going on, from general checkups to the kids having the flu. They told each other everything. And as Eva had once done decades ago for Rosie's mother, Eva's daughters began babysitting for Rosie. This came naturally to the two best friends, as Rosie knew she could trust Eva's daughters to look after her children. They weren't strangers at all. On the 22nd of February 2005, Rosie had arranged to go meet up with some friends from her old high school to organise a reunion, and so asked Eva whether her daughters could babysit her children for her, which they did. And as with every babysitting job they'd done for Rosie before, it went really smoothly and nothing appeared to be amiss at all. Eva's daughters returned back to Eva's home at about 11pm with only love and good things to say about how that night had gone. And when Eva and Rosie caught up next, no cause of concern presented itself at all. On Thursday the 24th of February 2005, Rosie, Yaz, and their two young children woke up to begin getting ready for their day. 
Yaz had the day off and so had time to play and look after the kids, allowing Rosie to go about her day without needing to worry about them. That day, Rosie had arranged to go to the cinema with her sister to see a movie and to catch up. But the morning's errands and chores had quickly caught up with her, and before she knew it, she was running late. Rosie quickly got ready to go out to the cinema, rushing out the front door. But before she could, her husband and father of her two children asked her whether she had taken her calcium supplements yet that day. Rosie hadn't, and as the couple were trying for a third child, and also as Rosie was getting older and she wanted to protect her immune system and health, Yaz pressed Rosie to make sure she took the calcium pill. Rosie actually took the calcium pill handed to her by Yaz as she was rushing out the door to her car, slightly annoyed as she was already running late and she didn't want her sister to think that she had stood her up. And so Rosie jumped into her car and began to drive towards the cinema. At 1.53pm, Rosie phoned up Eva as she was driving to chat with her. And during that day, did you receive a phone call? I did. From Rosie? Mm-hmm. Yes. yes. Mm-hmm. And where were you when you received your phone call? I was in my office, and it was my lunch hour. And what time was your lunch hour? Our lunch is from 1 to 2. Right. What time did you receive the telephone call from Rosie? It was about 1.53. And the reason I know that is because I looked at my phone and saw that it was her. And I said, she knows I go back from lunch at 2 o'clock. Why would she be calling me so close to that? And um, did you answer your phone? I did, yes. And what did you say to Rosie? I said, you know, hi, what are you doing? You know I'm at lunch. I have to go back at 2. She says, well, I'm just using you. Overruled. Now, can you explain to the ladies and gentlemen of the jury what it means, I'm using you? It was something that we said to each other when we would be driving from one spot to another, and we just would call each other and, and use them and chat while we got to the store or to wherever we were headed. All right. And so, Mrs. McGregor, what did Rosie say to you during the course of your conversation with her? Well, she was saying, I said, so where are you going? What are you doing? And she said that, um, as usual, she she was meeting her sister for a movie at the last minute since Yaz was home. She was going to go and meet her sister at a movie, and she was already running late. Um, and... Um, and then we talked about my daughter was going out on her first date, my oldest daughter. And we talked about that, and she wanted to make sure that I didn't talk her out of it. Um, and then um, <clears throat> she said that, um, she, you know what, she said she wasn't feeling well. And I said, why? I, I, what's the matter? She says, well, I'm feeling a little nauseous. She said that... Um, <clears throat> that she had taken a a calcium pill right before she left her house. And I said, calcium? I said, when did you start taking calcium? And she said, well, she was at um, Yaz's family's, and they had a discussion that because of her age, she should start to take calcium. And she said she didn't really want to take it. And she said as she was... In you know, rushing out the door, he said, here, take it, take your calcium. And she said, I just, you know, that I took it. And she says, now I don't know if that's what's making me sick. And when you heard that, 
What did you say? I said to her, I said, geez, I thought we had discussed. Objection. Sustained. Let me get back. With regards to taking the calcium pill, were you surprised she took it? Yes. Why were you surprised? Objection. Sustained. With regards to the remainder of your conversation, how did you end it? She said to me that she was um, going to call Yaz and ask him if the calcium pill he gave her could be making her sick, could be making her feel so nauseous. All right. So your understanding was that Yaz had given her a calcium pill. Yes. All right. <coughs> Mrs. McGregor, when did you talk to Rosemary again? Never did. <laughs> Was that your last phone call with Rosemary? Yes. had that conversation with Rosemary, did you go back to work? Yes, I did. I was at work, so I just went to work. Shortly after hanging up the phone call with Eva, Rosie became involved in a car crash. We're going to take a look at extracts from witness testimony of the car crash and the scene that played out that Thursday afternoon in February of 2005 in order to get the best understanding of the events that played out that we can. There are three main characters in this witness testimony, a mother who was just driving by, a cross guard who was waiting for the children to come out of school so that she could start her job, and a clergyman. I was at the Richmond Mall and I was just up the Richmond Mall. I was headed to a hair appointment in Willoughby. I was headed east on uh, Wilson Mills and uh, there was a car headed west. Um, the car had kind of veered and hit another car and then slowed down and then kind of went over center and was coming towards me and I, I saw the girl slump and then come back up and almost like she was picking something up off the ground and she came back up and then um, she kind of, the car kind of turned going back towards where she was supposed to be on her side of the road and I saw her slump again and I knew something was wrong. So I pulled my car over to the center and got out and I ran after her car, got into her car, put the brakes on and um, started you know, I saw, you know, Rosie, if I may, um, she was, I could tell she was in trouble. Um, I had my cell phone in my back pocket. Uh, the crossing guard was behind me. Um, I was saying, you know, call 911, my, my phone's in my pocket and Rosie, uh, had vomited. I, I kind of moved her head over. So, you know, she wouldn't swallow anything and, you know, the vomit got on her leg and out the door and, uh, I just kind of held held her head up until the EMS got there. And how long have you been a crossing guard? This is my 10th year. I went to work and did what I normally do. I turned on the signal, went to sit in my car and wait for the, the kids to come out. And then I wasn't paying. I was reading a magazine. I wasn't really paying attention. I looked up and I saw a lady chasing an SUV down the street that 
looked like it was idling by itself, like it wasn't, nobody was steering it. And I just couldn't believe what I was seeing. And as the SUV got closer, I didn't see anybody in the car. And then as it got closer, I saw a body slumped over. I got out of my automobile when I saw somebody was in the SUV. And I ran across the street. Okay. And what did you do when you ran across the street? Well, the the other lady chasing the SUV was already holding Mrs. Issa's head up. And I was I was just looking in and I saw she didn't look good. Her eyes were wide open. All right. And what and what do you recall about that, Mrs. Credico? I just I tried talking to her, but there was no response. Um, Did the eyes blink at all? No, never. All right. Was she breathing? I I couldn't tell. I heard some kind of gurgly, raspy noises from the chest, but I don't know, you know, if it was breathing. All right. And what did you do? Did you help that other woman? There was nothing I could do. I mean, she was holding her head. If she would let her head go down, it would, she would just flop back over. So I felt her hand to see if maybe she could squeeze it. I would get some response, but her hand was limp. All right. So you actually physically touched her? Yes, touched her hand. At any point in time, was she responsive? No. Um, were you responsible for calling 911? No, actually, I didn't have my cell phone with me that day. So who called so I, I really don't know who called 911. Were you present when the officers arrived? When the one officer arrived, yes. And then after he arrived, shortly afterwards, the paramedics came. And then I had to go back across the street because it was almost dismissal for the kids to cross. I was uh, hit a glancing blow on the left side along the rear uh, rear passenger door on the left side, a little bit onto the rear fender. Were you able to anticipate that you were going to be hit by this vehicle? I would say sort of. It was uh, moving erratically and slowly and uh, was drifting uh, toward me across the left turn lane. As soon as I got hit, her car then continued on westbound and very slowly. And I, of course, stopped my car, hopped out. Her car was still moving, I said. being a victim of a hit and run or or what. And so I took off after to see if I could get uh, the license number. And it continued to drift and eventually came to a stop. I was uh, running toward it, of course. And as soon as my attention was off of the license plate and the car stopped, I looked and I could not see anyone in the car. I was beat to the, to the car by two other people. Okay. And uh, one of the persons opened the driver's door and I could see uh, Mrs. Issa slumped down in the, in the vehicle. When I saw Mrs. Issa, um, I knew she had some, at that point, I knew she had some kind of medical emergency. She had vomited. And as I was reaching for my cell phone, Uh, I was told that uh, the call had already been made. When the paramedics arrived, Rosie was rushed to Hillcrest Hospital for treatment, the same hospital where she worked as a nurse and the same hospital where her husband, Dr. Yaz Esser, also worked. Let's take a look at extracts from the testimony of the doctor who treated Rosie that day. His identity has been protected as per his own request and court order. Do you recall the date of February 24th of 2005? 
Yes. And were you working that day? I was. Did there come a time that you provided care and treatment to a Rosemary Issa? Yes. And would you describe to the ladies and gentlemen of the jury what you observed and what took place? I was called to the room uh, with reports that there was a motor vehicle accident, a young female. I wasn't given much information on that. Um, upon arrival in the, in the room, uh, we do a quick initial assessment. And early on, I noticed that she was not breathing well. Uh, she was not responding to me. Um, and I got the nurses started on uh, hooking her up to the monitor. Um, and I also noted that she had very shallow respirations and said, we're going to need to get ready to uh, breathe for her, uh, intubate, put a tube in. I was asking questions from the EMS regarding what happened. Uh, they said she was in a minor motor vehicle accident. Uh, they didn't give me an indication that there was a major amount of damage. Um, they did not. I don't recall that they gave me a set of vital signs uh, when they arrived. But soon after getting hooked up to the monitor, uh, she had a very erratic heart rhythm. So I backed up and took a look at her, and I didn't see any major signs of trauma, um, but elected to uh, intubate, which means put a tube in her throat to breathe for her because she wasn't breathing well on her own. Um, that was done easily without any complications. Um, once that was established, um, I don't recall that she had uh, a palpable blood pressure. Um, and soon after that, we needed to initiate CPR. So her condition deteriorated rather quickly. During those, that course of events, she was given multiple rounds of medications to stimulate her heart and to at least stabilize the rhythm. Um, she had a very erratic heart rate and a thready pulse and at times no pulse. So they were also doing chest compressions throughout this effort. Rosie's husband, Dr. Yaz Esser, had been listed as her emergency contact and so was contacted as soon as Rosie was brought to the emergency room. Yaz had been at the family home looking after the couple's two children when he had received the call from the hospital. And in a panic and rush, he grabbed their two children, threw them into his car and drove over to Dominic DiPuccio's house, who was Rosie's brother, and asked him to look after the kids while he rushed to Rosie's side at the hospital. This had happened so quickly that Rosie's daughter hadn't even been fully dressed when she'd been dropped off with her brother at Dominic's house. Dr. Yaz Essa then drove straight to the hospital and rushed to be by Rosie's side. Dr. Essa arrived soon after uh, putting the tube in and I'd asked if she had any medical problems. I don't recall any, I'm saying she had any medical problems. I discussed with him what had been going on up till that point. Uh, we obtained, uh, I believe, some lab work. Um, at, soon after getting the lab work, I was getting some results back and I didn't recall anything remarkable that would help us. And she continued to have really no response to the treatments. This went on probably for 30 to 40 minutes, uh, I believe. And at that point, uh, again, there was no signs or indication that anything was uh, improving. And it wasn't long after that that we had a conversation regarding uh, these efforts. And I discussed with him, quite frankly, that I didn't know that there was anything more that we were going to be able to do. Our, uh, the medications we're giving her, the CPR, the um, breathing did not seem to make an improvement. And, you know, I, uh, given the type of rhythm that she had and that type of problem, they are not easily recoverable um, unless you can find what's going on to reverse it. And so after 40 to 45 minutes approximately, um, I discussed with him the fact that uh, she's not improving and I don't know what other efforts we can do. And I believe he said to me uh, at that time, just call it, which at that moment I agreed. I didn't know that there was anything more that we could be doing to change the outcome. Within an hour of arriving at the hospital, 
Rosemarie Esser was pronounced dead. But how had this happened? How had such a minor car crash resulted in Rosie's death? Had Rosie suffered from a fatal seizure or something like that? News quickly spread to Rosie's family and friends that she had passed away, with many family members gathering at Rosie's house to support one another. Dominic, Rosie's brother, had been the one to make several extremely difficult calls to Rosie's family and friends. One of those people being her best friend, Eva. When we got home from the the, um, the choir concert, we there was a message on the phone from Dominic, her brother. And my first thought was, well... Objection. Oh, go ahead. My first um, thought was, well, Rosie's not calling me. It was unusual for Dominic to be calling me. I, I thought perhaps something happened to her parents. And Rosie was, you know, dealing with that. And she had Dominic call us to come and watch the kids. All right. And who called Dominic back? Um, I called Dominic back. All right. And... Did you come to learn from the conversation that you had with Dominic that Rosie had died? Yes. And with regards to how she died, were you told of that? Yes. Okay, what were you told? Objection. Did you come to learn that Rosie died in a car accident? (laughs) Yes, that it was a minor car accident. All right. And... Once you learned that it was a car accident, how did you react? I clicked. Hold on. Come to sidebar, please. Thank you, Your Honor. Mrs. McGregor, we were talking about the fact that you have come to learn of Rosie's death. And you called Dominic back. Yes. And you learned that she was in a car accident. As soon as that you yes. learn, as soon as you learn that she's in a car accident, what's your reaction? I collapse on the kitchen. Floor. I collapse on the kitchen floor. I collapse on the kitchen floor. And did you, at that point in time, continue to talk to Dominic? No, I gave the phone to my husband. All right. And did he, in fact, continue to have a conversation with Dominic? Yes. You did not have a conversation at that point? No. All right. Your husband hangs up the phone. Yes. And what do you do? I console my daughters who are very upset to hear it. So... Just help them for a long time. (laughs) Try to somehow explain this to them. Um, So that's what I did initially. All right. And did there come a point in time that evening that you called Dominic back? Yes. And when you called Dominic back. Did you indicate to him that you had spoken to Rosie? Yes. And what did you tell Dominic? I told him the conversation I had with her on the phone and that um, she had told me that she had taken this calcium pill. Okay. 
that Yaz had given her. Strangely, Yaz, Rosie's husband, began to tell medical staff and Rosie's family and friends that Rosie had been suffering from heart palpitations, and that could have been the cause of her death. So you told Dominic that Yaz had given her a calcium pill? Yes. All right. And so what did you want them to do with regards to you telling them that? I wanted them to, to look into her death. She didn't complain to me at all about palpitations. She would have told me if she was having palpitations. The information that Eva gave to Rosie's brother Dominic actually prompted him to demand that a full autopsy and toxicology test be conducted by the county coroner the following day. And so on the 25th of February 2005, the county coroner conducted an autopsy on Rosemarie Esser. But this autopsy gave Rosie's family and detectives no answers. It found no indication of any injuries and an internal examination showed no evidence of trauma. As a result, the county coroner was unable to determine a cause of death at the time of the autopsy and so referred the matter for toxicology screening. The toxicology screens were then conducted, testing Rosie's blood for signs of alcohol or drug abuse. It further looks for signs of prescription drugs in her system. These toxicology screens did not reveal any unusual substances in Rosie's system. So how had this perfectly healthy 38-year-old mother of two died so suddenly in a car accident that should have just given her mild whiplash? The investigators knew they were missing a vital piece of the puzzle. But what? The detectives decided to allow Yaz and his family some time to grieve for their loved one, and with no indication or evidence of foul play, they had no basis to arrest or bring in anyone for questioning. They spoke with the witnesses that had been at the scene of the car crash and with medical staff, but couldn't find anything to answer the question of why Rosie had passed away. On the 17th of March 2005, two weeks after the death of Rosie, the detectives contacted Yaz and asked him whether he would be able to come down to the police station voluntarily to give a statement concerning Rosie's death. The detectives had no suspicions of foul play and just wanted to ascertain his timeline of events. The investigator asked Yaz about the calcium capsules that Rosie had been taking. They learned of these capsules from Dominic's inquiries after Eva had told Dominic about what uh, Rosie had said over the phone. So the detectives were aware that um, Rosie had taken a calcium capsule prior to her death. And Yaz responded to the investigators by saying, quote, two weeks before I was over at my mum's house and I thought about this as well. My mum had this older woman over and they were talking about osteoporosis and whatnot. And I'd been told, Rosie was there, that we should probably, you know, she's over 35, she should probably start taking calcium supplements. The investigator continued by asking whether Rosie had been experiencing any health problems, to which Yaz said no. Keep in mind that earlier he had been saying that she'd been suffering from heart palpitations, so he told the investigators no, and he confirmed that she had uh, not been under any stress recently. Yaz was then asked whether the calcium pills and prescription prenatal vitamins were still at his home, to which Yaz said that they were. The investigators asked to follow Yaz back to his home to collect the vitamins and calcium supplements, and Yaz agreed with no objections. And so the detectives followed Yaz back home. When the police entered Yaz's home, they noticed a woman sat in the kitchen. This woman was the daytime nanny that Yaz had hired following the death of Rosie to look after the kids when he was at work. 
He'd also hired a nighttime nanny. Yaz asked the detectives when they arrived at his house why they were collecting the pills, and the detective responded by saying, quote, well, you know my boss told me I should collect these so we can do a complete, we cover all the bases. The detectives took the pills into evidence, thanked Yaz for his time and left. The following day, on the 18th of March 2005, Yaz asked Rosie's sister to watch the kids overnight. Rosie's sister agreed to this, but then at 4am in the morning, going into the 19th of March 2005, Yaz left a voicemail in which he said that his friend's brother had been in a bad car accident, and that he didn't think that his friend's brother was going to make it, he was going to go to North Carolina where the car accident happened, to help and be there for him. Yaz asked Rosie's family to watch his children over the weekend, and said that he'd be back on Monday. But when Monday came around, Yaz was nowhere to be seen. Rosie's family, concerned, decided to ring up Yaz's friend to ask how his brother was. Maybe something had gone wrong and Yaz had to stay longer or something to that effect. But Yaz's friend responded by asking what the hell they were talking about. As it turned out, Yaz had never gone to North Carolina. Yaz's friend's brother had never been in a car accident. This simply hadn't happened. Rosie's brother Dominic rushed over to Yaz's house and uncovered a recently opened envelope on their kitchen counter, an envelope similar to the kind that a passport would be delivered in. The reality then set in. Yaz had gone. He'd fled. He'd run off. In fact, Yaz had actually enlisted the help of his brother to flee the United States. He told his brother that he had to get out of town as he was worried that people would find out about his extramarital affairs with two different women. The same two women that he had actually hired to be the daytime nanny and nighttime nanny for his children immediately after his wife had died. Yaz's brother enlisted the help of his cousin who had actually had experience with smuggling people out of the country, which is very, very convenient for Yaz, and together they concocted a ruse to go to Detroit with Yaz to gamble, which was where Yaz would cross the border into Canada. And to explain his absence, Yaz gave this fake story about an injured friend's brother in North Carolina to buy him some time. Interestingly, on the car ride to Detroit, Yaz had a concerning and revealing conversation with his cousins and brother. It's important to know that another one of their cousins had also joined them on this gambling trip and wasn't and claimed to have not been aware that they were then going to cross the border to Canada. Yaz had told them that he was scared of being implicated in the death of his wife, Rosie, after the police had uncovered some pills in the family home. When they asked Yaz about the pills, he told them that they were laced with cyanide. Once the group arrived in Canada, Yaz boarded a flight to Lebanon, where he would be, quote, taken care of. Yaz was given a new identity in Lebanon, his new name becoming George Khalifi. As a result of Yaz's sudden disappearance, Rosie's brother Dominic filed a missing persons report for Yaz on the 21st of March 2005. As all of this was taking place, the police had sent the calcium pills and prenatal vitamins to be tested at the Lake County Crime Lab. They were inspected on the 22nd of March 2005, the day after Yaz was reported as missing, and it was determined that 9 out of the 56 calcium capsules that were tested contained cyanide. Now cyanide isn't a drug that is tested for in regular toxicology screenings, and it actually requires the examiner to be specifically looking for it to get a result. Most forensic scientists don't see a cyanide case in their entire career, it's that rare. And horrifically, cyanide was something that you could quite easily get your hands on at the time, even just being able to order it online from the internet. 
The detectives, upon learning of the discovery of the cyanide in the calcium pills, secured a search warrant for Rosemary's car to ascertain samples from her vomit and seat covers. The case was quickly transformed into a homicide investigation, and their primary suspect, Yaz Esser, had gone missing. A fingerprint examiner examined eight of the nine capsules that were laced with cyanide for fingerprints on the 8th of April 2005. The examiner was able to detect that three of the eight pills had some fingerprint ridges, but there was not enough information to make any kind of comparison. The samples collected from the search of Rosemary's car revealed there to have been traces of cyanide in her vomit, and subsequently the coroner ordered a new toxicology screening of Rosie to be conducted. This was done on the 21st of April 2005, with a toxicology screening focusing on cyanide, and it was revealed that there had been 9.1 milligrams of cyanide per litre of Rosemary's blood, which is about three times the level that is considered fatal. The calcium capsules themselves had been laced with 600 to 800 milligrams of pure cyanide, which would have been enough to kill someone three or four times over. Now, typically, cyanide is a poison that can kill someone within seconds of ingestion, but the reason why Rosie didn't succumb to the poison until much later after taking the calcium pill was due to the fact that the calcium capsules that the poison had been loaded into were slow-release capsules. The police quickly theorised that Yaz had actually intended for Rosie to have been taking a route on the highway to the cinema when the effects of the cyanide kicked in, while she would have been driving 60 or so miles an hour and potentially crashing at high speed. This would have likely seen the coroner listing her cause of death as the result of the crash, a high speed crash. Though, Rosie decided to take the back roads that day and travelled at a much lower speed, a decision that would ultimately prove vital in finding her murderer. On the 22nd of April 2005, the county coroner determines that 38-year-old Rosemary Esser had died as a result of acute cyanide intoxication. In February of 2006, a year after Rosie had been murdered, a grand jury indicted Dr. Yasid Essie, charging him with aggravated murder. However, as we know, Yaz had already fled the country 11 months earlier. And so, the FBI were brought in to try and track him down. Meanwhile, the investigators spoke with the two women with which Yaz had been having extramarital affairs with. One of the women, who we'll call Person A, told the police that she had been in an intimate relationship with Yaz from October of 2004. Person A claims that Yaz had told her that he was unhappy in his marriage and that he had planned to leave his wife. Yaz told Person A on a regular basis that he loved her. On Valentine's Day of 2005, a week or so before Rosie would be murdered, Yaz sent Person A a handwritten Valentine's Day card that read, quote, Happy Valentine's Day. I can't wait to see you in this. I have my own selfish reason for giving you this gift. Next Valentine's Day will be ours. I love you with all my being. Almost immediately after Rosie had died, Yaz rung up Person A in hysterics, asking her to come to his house to be with him that evening. Yaz told Person A that, quote, you will be the only mummy that his children will remember, and I bet you never expected this. The detectives also spoke to the second woman with which Yaz was having an extramarital affair with, who we shall refer to as Person B. Person B told the authorities that on the 17th of March 2005, the day that the police collected the pills from Yaz's house, Yaz phoned her while she was babysitting his children to tell her that the police were coming to get Rosie's medications. Person B had been sat in the kitchen when the police had arrived, and after the police had left, 
Person B told the authorities that Yaz flipped out and was cussing and was angry. The FBI managed to trace and track Yaz Esser to Lebanon and located where he was living. Though Lebanon didn't have an extradition treaty with the United States, so the FBI agents couldn't arrest him. But it wasn't long before Yaz messed up. In October of 2006, Yaz traveled to Cyprus, a country that did have an extradition treaty with the US. And as Yaz departed the plane, as he got off the plane, he was arrested on the tarmac. Now, I won't bore you with the legal battle that followed this, as this episode is long enough as it is, but following that legal battle, Dr. Yazid Esser was returned back to the United States in early 2009 to stand trial. In this trial, Yaz's defense claims that the calcium pills hadn't been tampered with by him, but rather by somebody else. They refer to the Tylenol poisoning that had occurred in Chicago in 1982, which saw a total of seven people die after Tylenol capsules were laced with cyanide. The capsules were found to have been tampered with at some point in the manufacturing and distribution process, but no suspect was ever charged or convicted in that case. Yaz's defense rested on a repeat of the Tylenol murders. Though Rosie's death from these calcium pills had been the only reported case, it was an isolated event. It's important to note that Yaz tried to claim on a $1 million insurance policy, allegedly, but the details of which aren't super clear and I couldn't find that much information about it. There is a lot of information within this case and there's a lot of information that I haven't discussed um, because this case is huge, but I'm giving you the most important and relevant information within this, within this case. If you wanted to go even deeper into this case, um, you can check out my sources below, uh, including links to the full recorded trial, which is, I think, about 60 to 75 hours long. Dr. Yazid Esser was arraigned before a judge on the 14th of January 2009 and charged with aggravated murder. The trial against him began on the 9th of January 2010 and lasted six weeks. The jury soon reached a verdict in this case. Ladies and gentlemen, I understand that you have reached a verdict in this case. Is that correct? Yes. yes. Very good. Mr. Forperson, if you would hand me the verdict form. <clears throat> All right. Ladies and gentlemen, I want to thank you once again. We, the jury in this case, being duly impaneled and sworn, do find the defendant, Yazid Issa, guilty of aggravated murder in violation of 2903.01a of the revised code. Juror number one, is this your verdict? Yes. Juror number two? Yes. Juror number three? Yes. Juror number four? Yes. Juror number five? Yes. Juror number six? Yes. Juror number seven? Yes. Juror number eight? Yes. Juror number nine? Yes. Juror number ten? Yes. Juror number eleven? Yes. And juror number twelve? Thank you again, ladies and gentlemen, for your service. I'll rise for your drink, please. I will move to the bathroom, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you, all right? Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Thank Yaz's sentencing was decided on the week after the verdict was given, and his parents gave a statement to the courtroom during the sentencing. Jaron, I'm not very good at this, so please bear with me. Uh, first of all, we want, my family and I want to thank this court, yourselves, Mr. DeMeo, the 
the deputies, everybody that's associated with us, so kind to us, so good to us, it made this terrible ordeal a lot easier than it really, it really could have been. Thank you, Mr. Kuchin. And of course, there's no way we can ever thank enough the prosecutors, the Highland Heights Police Department for their tireless efforts in, 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 in this case. They worked long, hard hours. They were always available to answer our questions and to keep us somewhat advised of what was going on. And of course, the jury, we even have a jury member here today. We were lucky enough to get a jury that understood what was going on, could separate the facts from the smoke screens. And, uh, our family and friends, I mean, you, you've seen them. I've never seen anything like it, Mr. DiPuccio. Uh, I haven't either. Career. I haven't either. And even the media, you know, the, the, the media has been great. You know, we were so afraid of, you know, being attacked uh, while we were down here, but they've been as kind as they could be, and we will be forever grateful. Your Honor, 47 years ago, Gigi and I got married. A little over five years later, we had uh, four beautiful, healthy children. And as, as they grew, you know, uh, people would tell us all the time, even as they reached adulthood, you know, you have the greatest kids, you know, you did such a great job in raising them. And of course, we loved hearing that. But I was always tell Gigi, you know, we we're just lucky. You know, there are, I know a lot of other parents that tried as hard as we did to do the right things for their kids. And I don't know about that, Mr. DiPuccio. Well, you know, they end up with problems, whether it be crime, drugs, uh, health, whatever. But the thing we were proudest of them was that they cared for each other and they cared for other people. And again, every time we would hear that, I'd tell Gigi, it's just luck. Uh, February 24th, 2005, I told Gigi uh, our luck ran out. We lost our Rosie for no reason. It's been five years of mourning of adjusting and of just <clears throat> a changed life for all of us. Uh, I've seen a lot of court cases where when it's over, they talk about closure. I never understood that word for now. Right now, I for sure don't understand it because there is no closure. I mean, we were changed forever, but we'll, we'll survive, we'll handle it. The only thing I'm hoping that from now on, maybe um, maybe there'll be less nights that my wife cries herself to sleep. And I hope that Deanna can find somebody to never replace Rosie, because besides being sisters, they were best friends, 14 months apart, you know, could pass for twins. They were probably closer than most twins, but Deanna has a lot of great friends and a lot of them have been here and they're all supportive and helpful. Mm -hmm. Hopefully she'll, uh, she'll be able to use them for support. Rocky, Rocky was two years younger than Rosie, not even two years younger than Rosie, but she was like the big sister or second mother. And she was, from when they were little, she was the one that made sure he was dressed right for her going out in the snow and she taught him to tie his shoes. And as they grew older, 
She became his advisor, confidant. Whenever Rocky couldn't figure something out, he'd, Rosie would be the one he called. Dominic, it's been five years since we've had a Rosie Dominic Sunday dinner breakfast or Sunday dinner debate, mm -hmm. which were always hilarious, always ended up with a lot of laughter. And now Dominic and Julia taking over for Rosie and raising her children. And it's not always easy. In fact, it's hardly ever easy, but they're, they're great at it. My daughter-in-law, Julie, is a saint. We all try to help. Tiana, Rachel, my daughter-in-law, Rachel, Gigi, you know, we do what we can. But uh, Dominic and Julie, are, I know they're, they're carrying the ball. Your Honor, we believe in God. We don't always understand some of his workings, but we have always been taught that someday the day will come when we will understand. And we are looking for that. In the meantime, we will keep the faith and we will do our best to make sure that Lena, Armand, and her other 10 grandchildren We'll use Rosie as an example for how to live as a loving, kind, compassion human being. Thank you, Your Honor. Thank you, Mr. God bless you. Thank you. Do you have anything you'd like to say, Mrs. Stefuccio? Yes. I'd love to thank everybody also. Rosie, a devoted mother loving mother, daughter, sister, aunt, granddaughter, and friend. Beautiful, kind, caring, witty, independent, beautiful smile, contagious laughter. Family's the most important thing in her life and her dedication to nursing. Armin and Lena will always know their mother and how much she loves them. What do you say to a person that murders the mother of his children? A murdering coward, no heart, no compassion, no remorse, evil, Seven weeks looking at the devil in his eyes and a blank expression. May your life in prison be as miserable as you are. Rosie knew what you've done to her and she tried to call you. That night we were all at the house and there was a message on the machine. Rana kept rewinding it and rewinding it. And her and I and Sue were trying to figure out what Rosie was saying. She called you. Says, yes, this is Rosie. You came by, you stuck your finger on the machine and said, erase that message. I don't want to hear it again. I should have known then something wasn't right. It didn't go your way. 
instead she t she didn't go your way I'm sorry it didn't go your way instead she took another route and called Eva if she had been taken the freeway as she does she could have caused an accident and maybe have killed another family or someone else but you didn't care it was all about you money and women all she wanted was children and a husband who loved her back. You took that away. She didn't deserve what you did to her. See ya? She got you, Yas. And the Issa curse ends here today. We have Rosie and Armin and Lena. She's in our hearts. And with us always, Rosie will be smiling down at us as she is right now and is very proud of what we have done. Armin and Lena are Dipuccios and loved unconditionally by us and many. They have a large extended family. Our faith in God is strong and they will be fine. Rosie's watching over them. You see, Yaz, our family has something you don't have. Heart, love, compassion, and strength. And a higher power that will get us all through this. And Dominic and Julie are wonderful parents to all six of their children. Thank you. Thank you very much, everybody, for everything you said for us. Thank you. Rosie's best friend, Eva, then also gave a statement to the court. Rosemarie, my, my Rosie, I first met her when she was four years old. I watched her pass through adolescence. I watched her change into a woman. I saw her blossom into a mother. I babysat her. She babysat for my children. My, ba my children babysat for her children. We laughed together. We cried together. And we learned and grew together. We were buddies, pals, best friends. And much more than that, all these to each other. We shared our lives together. Then, on February 24th, 2005, I became her mourner, and she became my angel. I will do my best to let her children know the depth of her being, of the joy she brought, of her caring nature, and it will take a lifetime for me to do this for her, a lifetime that she was denied. I will miss her until I see her again. And until we both rest in the peace of God. Thank you, Your Honor. The judge then addressed the courts, giving her final thoughts and opinions on this case. I also, of course, want to thank the DiPuccio family, as well as the Issa family, for their professionalism and conduct during the course of this case. Ultimately, uh, to the DiPuccios, you have been the classiest, most remarkable family that I have ever encountered in my career. And I'm certain that 
Uh, I honestly, in moments of this case, I had no idea how all of you maintained your composure. It was remarkable to me. To the defendant, I have thought over the last few days of what to say to you. And honestly, you have so little respect for women that I doubt that anything that I could possibly say to you would make any difference to you at all. And so the DiPuccio said everything that I could ever say to you and more. Uh, and there is very little uh, I think that I could say it would be a waste of my breath. I regret that you have the benefit of uh, committing this crime uh, under the old law. And so the only sentence that I can give to you is the one by law. That is it. I have no other choice. But you took a, an oath as a doctor, and so many people have said that in this courtroom, that you took an oath to preserve life, and you destroyed your family, your brother, your sister, the DiPuccio family. I cannot imagine the evil that you have done to these people, especially your children. It is my great hope and the only hope that I can think of at this moment that they forget you, they forget you, and that Dominic does become their father, and that whatever legacy you had is wiped away. The jurors said something interesting to me uh, after the conclusion of this case. They said that they felt like you were the character in The Telltale Heart by Edgar Allan Poe. They felt like your actions were just like that. And that keeping that bottle of calcium or cyanide was your way of that heart beating. And I believe that they are absolutely accurate in assessing you. Your lack of emotion, your lack of remorse, it has been unbelievable, unbelievable to me. The things that you did to Rosie are unspeakable. And there is nothing that I could do to you that would undo the evil that you've done to all these people, including your brother who sits there, who loved you, to the DiPuccios and to your own children. I am so glad that you will be leaving my courtroom now and that I hopefully will never have to look upon you again. At this time, I sentence you to life in prison with the possibility of parole in 20 years. I have the right to inform you that you have the right to an appeal in this particular case and that you have 30 days from this date to file your notice of appeal. If you cannot afford an attorney, as your attorneys have represented to me now, one will be appointed to you to represent you. You are remanded at this time, and I am ordering the sheriffs transport you. Thank you, everybody, very All much. All rise. Now, Yaz did try to appeal his sentence, but it was denied. Rosie's two young children were adopted into Rosie's brother's, Dominic's family, and they have been brought up as if they were Dominic's own children. And from my research, it appears that they are both doing really, really well and living successful and happy lives. Not only did Yaz murder his own children's mother, but he ultimately orphaned them uh, at the same time. And I hope that he remains behind bars until the day that he dies. And that's everything I have for you in today's episode. 
Thank you for sticking with me through these videos from the courtroom and listening to Rosie's family and friends talk about who she was as a person and her life story, remembering her for who she was and not what ultimately happened to her. Make sure that you're subscribed to this channel and you've hit that bell icon so you can be notified every single time I post a brand new Curious Case true crime video just like this one. I post a brand new true crime video every Sunday, so make sure you're subscribed to that. Also, feel free to come join us on our True Crime Crew Discord server. A link to join is in the description and the pinned comments. We still have a 15% off merch sale on my merch store, so go to joshuamouse.shop to grab some of that if you want. And with all that being said, I'll see you in the next case. You've worked hard for what you have, your money, your assets, your 401k and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com slash aware. Terms apply. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.